Hello everyone, Brian McClintock here. You're listening to The Thin Green Line, which are episodes of the Viticole podcast dealing exclusively with environmental issues surrounding the wine world. You can find those under the TTGL abbreviation in our podcast history. And so gradually, people learned how to live within the family of life, following natural law for tens of thousands of years, right? It's, be, it's an unbroken understanding that was passed down from generation to generation. And once we decided that we were superior, that chain was broken. And then for the first time, we had to figure out how to live. More was better and we got conquest, we got standing armies, we got stratified societies, we got slavery because we weren't informed by natural law or by nature anymore. Okay, that was Larry Korn, author and disciple of his sensei, a man named Masanobu Fukuoka. Masanobu Fukuoka is a Japanese farmer and the pioneer of natural farming. He wrote a book called One Straw Revolution, which set the world on fire back in 1979. It is kind of a, let's call it a regenerative agriculture book, but so much more. So what is regenerative agriculture, first of all? That is kind of an idea of no-till organic farming, till being the tilling of soil, the turning over of the earth. Up and under that umbrella, you have maybe permaculture or agroforestry. And in a way, natural farming and Fukuoka's teachings in One Straw Revolution fit that profile. But in so many other ways, it's completely separate in terms of its spiritual constitution. It's available to anybody at any moment. Mm -hmm. And that's what natural farming is about, by the way. The whole thing is about reintegrating people back into nature. One of the interesting things that we get into in the podcast is that the spirit of natural farming has become so popular, but there hasn't been a lot of big moves to actually utilize these techniques in the United States. You see more of that in Southeast Asia and India and other parts of the world. And so... Now, as we start to get wise about climate change and how we can sequester carbon in the soil through not tilling, and as we start to think about what chemical farming has done to our food chain with people like Dr. Zach Bush talking about chronic illness going from 4% in the 1960s to 46% of our children having a chronic illness, and he asserts that a lot of this is owed to chemical farming. Then you have bigger companies like Patagonia Provisions who are essentially you know, launching entire food platforms on regenerative agriculture. So big business is starting to wake up. Well, this is something that, of course, soil scientists have been clued into for a long time. Sure. That it's the amount of organic matter in the soil that's the key to soil health. So let's see from this podcast what we can gain from the life of Fukuoka, which is a fascinating life. He was born in 1913 and died at 95 at 2008. And Fukuoka, essentially at 25, had this vision that nature was kind of perfect in and of itself. And without getting too deep into it, because Larry definitely covers it, he started experimenting on his farm in Japan, kind of quit his job. He was an agricultural inspector, moved back to his family's farm, started experimenting with these techniques of letting nature lead. In the first 10 years, there was a lot of disaster because there was the land was so badly damaged by human activity. But what happened later, and this was were specifically rice fields, where you know, the name One Straw Revolution gets its, its title. 
you know, after kind of those initial experimental years of getting the land back to its place, he started to not flood the fields. He started not using compost. He started doing less and less and less. All of a sudden, people started visiting that farm. It took years, decades, before Larry even met him. By the time Larry met him in the 70s, Fukuoka was an old man. He had a presence. You can see just from the photo that he certainly looks the part right. of an Asian sensei. Yes. And so basically, Larry was working on Fukuoka's farm when the Japanese manuscript of One Straw Revolution came out. Larry was responsible for taking the Japanese manuscript from Shikoku Island, where Fukuoka's farm is, and bringing it back to the United States and translating it. And that's really when things went gangbusters for the book. It's now, I don't know how many printings, but is more widely available today than it was back in 1979. And you probably couldn't say that seven to ten years ago. So uh, why has this book endured is much of this entire discussion. And Larry wrote a follow-up book called One Straw Revolutionary in 2015, I believe, which kind of chronicles his life and times with Fukuoka. And he says, well, how about this rice? Have you ever seen rice like this before? And it was, it was shorter and it was kind of olive green and it had more grains to the head than others. It, it looked different. I said, no, I've never seen rice like this before. And he said, you know, that's because these fields haven't been plowed for more than 25 years. Whereas the first book talks about Fukuoka's teachings and the techniques and the principles all from Fukuoka's perspective, One Straw Revolutionary is Larry's experiences before, during, and after Fukuoka. So much of our podcast kind of follows the plot line of the new book. That is a fascinating conversation. It has a lot of amazing insights into not only farming and where the world needs to go with that, but also the decisions he made in his life are incredibly unique, brave, and I think inspiring. And there are signposts that pop up here and there. Yeah. And if you recognize them and go that way, they're leading you to your destiny. So one signpost was get on that passenger boat and go to Asia. So with that, I think the first hour kind of focuses on Larry, and then the last 20 minutes or so, we shift the conversation into the space of viticulture and where it intersects with natural farming. How do some of these Fukuoka's techniques, how are these relevant to the wine world? When we start to, to shift into the wine conversation, Nate Reddy from Haiyu uh, Farms jumps in. He's a winemaker who works regeneratively, does not till on his farm. Uh, does a lot of progressive things with encouraging biodiversity at his vineyard site. So Nate's input was indispensable. Like in the Morishet land is like super, super precious. People have to, like they take things like yield, like, you know, the, like very seriously. But in situations where, where there's a lot of land available and also where you're not, again, like putting in all this input into tilling and mowing and spraying and all those things, then all of a sudden a situation where you're really more foraging for grapes across a broad landscape, it's irrelevant that the yield isn't as high. There's a little white noise when he comes in because he was not even mic'd up during this session and not expected to come in, but his commentary was absolutely valuable and 
really helped kind of put a button on this entire conversation. So hope you enjoy the podcast. Without further ado, let's jump right into it. We find ourselves on different sides of a land nobody drew. There's this quote in your book that, again, I found really enlightening, and I want to kind of start our conversation there. So quote goes, this is from your sensei, Fukuoka. When a child first becomes aware of the moon, that child is simply filled with wonder. Then after a period of time, the child learns to discriminate between a subject eye and an object, the moon. The child comes to know that the thing called the moon as other. So Fukuoka's idea was that the human beings that really see the world directly as it is are children, infants, because they don't distinguish, because the world is, is intercon- completely interconnected. And over time, people come to separate a tree from a bush, from a rock, and they start to distinguish that oak tree has certain characteristics, and then they add judgment. Some of these characteristics are good, some are bad. And none of these things exist in nature. And the infant doesn't have what's, what sensei called discrimination, where to decide between one thing or another. And this is all part of a process of what we call education. But it's actually a sort of indoctrination into the cultural values of our modern culture. Do you have any of those early childhood memories of seeing nature in that context? Oh, absolutely. Even now, oh, I feel totally lucky when I come back to that place. <laughs> it's, it's very peaceful, it's very relaxing, and it feels like home Yeah. to so, me, actually. We talked about this at uh, lunch, but you grew up in Silver Lake. In Los Angeles. In Los Angeles. I'm a city boy. So it was through and through. Was this nature thing an overcompensation for being a city boy? Where did this come from? Oh, no, no. I think I just, nature found me. I didn't go off looking. I was always interested in Asian culture, and I studied Chinese history at Berkeley. And then I went to Asia just to see what it was like there. And I met up with some back-to-the-land commune people who said, hey, why don't you come and visit our communes? Here's where they are. Here's places where you can get in touch with these people and they'll let you stay and they'll, you know. And since I had no plan, when I left, I had a backpack. I guessed what I would need. How old were you? I had very little money, 23. Mm -hmm. I had very little money. And importantly, I had no itinerary, no schedule. I was just going off for adventure. So anything that came along, oh, if it seemed interesting, I'd do it. And so this led me to the communes, which led me to a love of plants and soil, which came completely by surprise, because I was a city, grew up in the city, except for some camping trips to state parks and things when I was young. To me, the natural world was kind of like wallpaper. It was just there, and then there was a human drama. So where was this fascination with Asian culture? Where does this come from? That I don't know. But it could be that I was always going off to the beach at Santa Monica and Venice and looking across the ocean and wondering what the people were like over there. On the other side of the ocean. No, but yeah, instead of looking out towards Europe. Right. But no, there was something more. I I don't know where... I just had an idea that there was something out there for me. And I sensed that there was a kind of an understanding 
in Asia that we, that we were missing in the West. And I didn't know what that was. I had no idea what that was. And for me, that became allowing myself to be reintegrated back into the natural world. So, for example, that I can walk through a forest and feel totally comfortable talking to the trees and the plants and feeling like they're talking to me. This was a completely, like, I never would have thought of that before. Yeah, but it wasn't always so. The, what, what was the impetus for this decision to even go to Japan in the first place? What, what made you say, okay, I'm going to turn idea into action? I don't know. <laughs> but there are these, okay, what I learned, though, during the course of my life is there are signposts that pop up here and there. Yeah. And if you recognize them and go that way, they're leading you to your destiny. So one signpost was, get on that passenger boat and go to Asia. There is something right. there for you. The next one was, when I met the Japanese woman that we talked about at lunch, yeah. by the time we got to Japan, we're in love, and I'm living in Japan for two years. Yes. You know, the next was to go to the communes and to find plants and soil. See, this is a path that I didn't create. And then find my way to Fukuoka's place. And then once the One Straw Revolution came about, every time the book needed something, that person appeared. I found your, your trip on the boat fascinating. It seemed like this almost sun also rises Hemingway moment. I mean, you're in the 16th class out of 16, sleeping next to the engine room. You're meeting all these fascinating people on the boat. One's like a World War II spy. It happens because... It happened because I wasn't locked in. And so here, going now we'll go to Fukuoka's philosophy. When you start natural farming, how do you know what to do? Mm. You look for these signs, and you go that way. You don't have a pre-existing idea. This is what I want to do with the land. And so how am I going to impose my will? It's another way of saying the shortcut to that is people should live in harmony with nature. Mm. That's a cliché. These, by now. But what I'm talking about is a personal relationship with where you're living. And this is not just what I'm going to get from the land. This is what can we do together to make this a, an abundant and diverse place for all species. Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting thing. We're, we're very tribal and we tend to classify. And I I've always looked at people through my adult mind and said, okay, this person is an outdoorsman and this person as a city person, and you would, you would probably, I assume based on Fukuoka's teachings, think that it's in absolutely everybody, even the people who don't want to get their feet dirty on the sand, it's in everybody to find that aspect in and of themselves and to connect with nature. Oh, anybody can find it. It's right there. It's available to anybody at any moment. Mm -hmm. And that's what natural farming is about, by the way. The whole thing is about reintegrating people back into nature into an appropriate relationship. So we've somehow excluded ourselves from the natural world, mainly by thinking that we were superior to other species. Mm -hmm. You know, so how do we get back? Well, your first connection to the land was when you got off the ship in Asia, and after some time you connected with these people called the, I believe, the Buzoku? The Buzoku. Yes, tell me about these people. Uh, they're back to the land people. They had virtually no money, and they went, they, they called themselves the future primitives. They had a great vision. Before that, they called themselves the Bum Academy, which was also pretty cool because they were beatnik 
influenced and that sort of fit. But then it sort of evolved into more of a connection with nature. And they set up these communes in remote but very beautiful places in Japan and uh, lived the way people were living there hundreds of years ago. Yeah, so these, these were your connection to ag. Up until this point, there was no real agricultural background in your life, Nothing. right? This was the moment, right? You know, I was thinking about that. I never had a vegetable garden until I went to these communes. And in fact, I don't think I'd ever even been in a vegetable garden right. until I was like 23. But, but what a difference. I mean, the whole world suddenly became 3D. It was like the Wizard of Oz. Yeah. You know, where you go from black and white to suddenly this whole magical world. And I'm still living in that world. Amazing. So the Buzoku, just to clarify, that they were, I mean, I, we think of like beatniks or like bohemian type people in, in our society and in the Western mind, that's like, oh, cool, they're making that decision. But the consequences were a lot more drastic in Japanese culture for these people, right? Were they considered almost ostracized? or They were completely ostracized. Yeah. Because... Japan is a, is a culture where people, they make, it takes them a while to make a decision, but then everybody goes in that direction. And if you are not on the main road, then people, then you're not keeping up and you're kind of a goof off and then you can't get a job. If, you, if somebody takes one year off before starting college or after college, people wonder, what were you doing during that year? You're a flake, you can't get a job anymore. Mm. Not that these people were interested in coming back into Japanese society. It's a unique society. Well, it's, it's limited in terms of like freedom to be yourself. Pretty much have to follow in the track. And these people did not. And a lot of them eventually found their way to other countries because it was just too limited in their country. Also, by the time I met these people, they could never find a decent job again. What were you doing? Living on a commune? Right. It's like... So one of your major um, turning points as you started to move into this ag world uh, was on Suwanose Island. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Yeah. And I quote here, I had no idea that when I left the island just a few months later, I would be a completely different person. What happened there? What happened was that's when I saw the natural world for the first time. And it was glorious. And it was... 3D and I could feel the wind for the first time and I could feel the sunlight and the soil started speaking to me and I just fell in love with being alive. Did it speak to you immediately or was there no. this period? Oh, it was horrible at first <laughs> because it's a commune. This is remote. This is people living in, let's say, well, I'll tell you, Suwanase made Fukuoka's farm that people say, oh, Fukuoka's farm, it was so rustic. No electricity, no running water. Fukuoka Farm was like Club Med or something like that compared to where this place was. You know, I didn't know how to cook and I was expected to cook once a week. I didn't know how to use tools. I didn't know how to work. I didn't know how to do anything. It affects your ability to be present and enjoy your work too, I imagine. There well, was... that eventually is what happened, but it didn't happen right away. Yeah. At first, I basically turned inward and I said, I don't know how to do anything. And I keep eating, but I'm not producing anything. People are looking at you funny. They are, but, but not like scolding me or anything. Right. I realized that I was one of many people who passed through that island in that commune mm. that came on one boat and went right out on the next one. 
because they were feeling the same way as me, but I stuck it out. And I worked, and then I had a breakthrough, and then suddenly I loved work, and I loved working in the fields, and I loved cooking. How many people were on this? this? How many people were on this? Maybe 15. 15? 10 or 15, yeah. Wow, that is remote. And then as soon as that happened, it's like exactly when that happened, everybody started accepting me, and then they started taking the time to show me how to sharpen the tools, showed me how to cook, showed me how to do everything. They didn't want to invest any time in me. Until they saw that change Until I saw that I wasn't just going to leave on the next boat. They were too busy. I got that because several years later, I was at Fukuoka's farm and we had the same thing. People coming mainly from the city, not knowing how to work, being like the place was all strange because they had no... They, they weren't intellectually stimulated mm-hmm. all the time. And we just went out to the fields and we worked all day and, and just didn't want to come home when it got dark. That's amazing. You know, and the people from the city, they worked for an hour or two and then they kind of lost interest and started getting nervous. But we'd seen it and then they left. So why would we invest time? And you actually had, before the Fukuoka even came into the picture, you went back home, you enrolled in college, and then there was one particular class, I believe it was Soils 105, that you considered the greatest college course you ever took. Well, I did. You know, I actually, I hadn't met Fukuoka-san yet, and of course he was a scientist mm-hmm. who eventually rejected science. Yeah, he, was, then, he studied under Harvard-educated people too, right? He, he yeah, that's right. I yeah. mean, the lineage goes back to Harvard in the 1880s. Amazing. Of his teachers. He had the, in the agriculture, his education was in the top 1%. If he looks like this rural wizard, I never would have thought that by, by looking at him and then finding it in your book. That was a really fascinating point. Uh-huh. But there was a key turning point when you were at college where one of your professors talked about how people were overtilling. They were talking about... Okay, that was, yeah, that was a class where the professor who had been teaching us about how natural soil develops and how glorious that is and all the relationships. It's like, I mean, for me, it's like the closest thing. When I imagine myself as the soil or become the soil, that is the closest that I come to God, let's say. Is mm-hmm. I see it in the soil. And, and that's what we were learning. Then... He said, okay, today we're going to shift gears a little bit and we're going to talk about agriculture. And then he said, okay, so what does everybody do? They plow the soil. And what happens when you plow the soil? You eliminate all the vegetation and the habitat for other creatures. You break down the, the uh, structure. You make, make it more difficult when it dries out for the air and water to circulate. You burn out the organic matter. You mess up all the microorganisms and all of that stuff. And this was painful, just listening to that. Yeah, I think you said people in the class were practically in tears. Well, I was. Yeah. And others were too. Oh, and then after this plowed, he goes, okay, now the, the agriculture, then they add these chemicals. And he starts talking about the different chemicals and how they change the soil and what they do. And so, I mean, this was like horrible. And, and somebody asked in the class, so if this is so bad, why do we do it? And they said, we just don't know what, 
any other way to grow enough food. What year is this? This would have been in the 1975-6. Wow. Yeah, I was living in the Napa Valley then and commuting. So this is like a year after or two years after Roundup even hit the market before there were just other herbicides and... There was still yeah. herbicides. Yeah. There's always been herbicides. Yeah. Now we got neonics, which is silent spring all over again, essentially. Yeah. I went out to Williams, uh, which is an agricultural community about an hour west of here, mm. where it's the heart of our organic farming community. And it's spring and it's the blossoms are and everybody's plowing and they're disking and they're going, oh, what a good life. It's spring. And I look out. And what do I see? An entire valley where once there was a diverse ground cover of camas and wild grasses and forbs and flowers. And what is it now? It, it's strictly for creating human food. Everything else is eliminated mm -hmm. and the soil is exposed. And then even when I got to my friend's super great permaculture, biodynamic natural farm, we were sitting there talking and he had just plowed a place to do a little something. And so we were talking about it and I said, do you hear that screaming? They go, what? And he pointed to, because I could hear it. Mm -hmm. I could hear the place where he plowed, even a small place. What does it sound like? It's a feeling. I have never, ever met a soil that said to me, oh, plow me, please. <laughs> Ever. It's so funny that we, we talk about it in terms of microbial health and soil structure integrity because I came at the, the no-till approach completely backwards through climate change. It was always this idea of carbon sequestration. In my s small mind, not being introduced to no-till, I assumed, well, people till the soil for health and it invigorates the vines and had no idea that... Um, there was this whole other side of the coin beyond releasing carbon into the atmosphere. Well, this is something that, of course, soil scientists have been clued into for a long time. Sure. That it's the amount of organic matter in the soil that's the key to soil health. And that is just loaded with carbon. Well, I feel like all these moments were super important for you before meeting Fukuoka-san. I mean, these were like seminal moments. Looking back, I could see that everything I had done, everything that had happened to me since I got on the boat to go to Japan, meeting Kazuko, finding the communes, the soil science, the tools, learning how to work, even going back to soil science, all of this had prepared me for what I was going to do at that farm. Hmm. But the thing that prepared me the most was that when I got on the boat, I had no itinerary, I had no fixed schedule, I had no agenda, and I was willing to be guided. Mm. Well, now we, if we ship to Fukuoka, guided by nature. Nature is instructing you on what to do. You're not helping nature along. Mm. You're not, you don't have some idea what you want to do that would be good for you or what nature needs. Oh, nature needs new... Uh, microorganisms, fermented microorganisms, and then you get Korean natural farming. Oh, nature needs this, and then you get biodynamics. Nature needs that. This is all stuff that people have thought up. Mm -hmm. What nature needs is a bunch of seeds. 
and then let it alone. Is there a fine line between letting nature lead and neglect? Because I, I remember there were moments where, you know, Fuku Fukuoka in the beginning, you know, never pruned his orchards and all the trees died. And that was like a big lesson that you outlined in the book. The big lesson was that this is land that had been damaged already by human activity. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of natural farming is that, that it's um, nature and the energy and the predisposition or the very character of nature is to provide abundance and to create the uh, conditions that are conducive to life. And natural farming is based on that and the indigenous people I mean, they found themselves in this place as like consciousness developed or they say, oh, look at this place. And they go, damn, for one thing, this is beautiful. It's great to, I mean, what a gift. Then they noticed everything they needed to live, to eat. It was literally growing on trees mm -hmm. and in roots and stuff. And so natural farming is based on that idea. They, the indigenous people didn't do anything that would inhibit nature from continuing to provide the stuff. And, and yet almost everything that we do, thinking that we're going to improve on nature or that we're going to get more stuff for ourselves, there's always consequences. And they get worse and worse. And we keep trying to solve them using the same way of thinking that we're going to direct the show. Mm -hmm. Fukuoka's way was a different. Instead of saying, how about doing this and how about doing that? Is what if we didn't do this and didn't do that? Almost everything about natural farming is exactly the opposite. It was very interesting to, to hear you talk about the reviews of the original One Straw Revolution and to actually put the Native American publication who reviewed that book and yeah. compared Fukuoka's ideals to very much being in line with Native American Even culture. the Native American um, people at the time One Straw Revolution came out, they immediately recognized it as, as their way, the same way of interacting with the landscape. Mm. So you had two trips to Japan, and on both trips there were whispers of Fukuoka. And there, I'm sure there were enough whispers for you to finally say, I need to meet this guy. That's right. I was living on a kind of our own little communal farm in the mountains about an hour north of Kyoto. And we were doing organic farming, exactly the traditional Japanese farming. And we were the only ones around that were doing that. So it was a throwback. Progressive <laughs> compared to the region, right? You were the shoes on valley and you said there was a lot of mechanization at that time. There, it was getting to be. Yeah. It was still traditional enough that they were still transplanting rice and harvesting rice by hand, and mm -hmm. that was a great experience. Mm -hmm. so, but we were still using ground cover. They didn't, you know, a, a cover crop. They didn't bother, but we plowed because, you know, we flooded the field because that's the way they did it. That's the way everybody did it. What was your first impression of him? He had a presence. You can see just from the photo that he certainly looks the part right. of an Asian sensei. Yes. yes. But here he was, he had his boots on, he'd been, you know, and he was working, he had his kama, his hand sickle that everybody has, and, and uh, he was very friendly. I mean, it happened 
that I just came there and was looking around the fields because his fields were so different than the other rice fields. And he happened to be down there instead of up in the orchard. And he came over and we started talking. And I and he asked me if, you know, I told him about Suwanase and about our farm mm. up there and how it's all in Japanese. I, I really loved agriculture and so forth. And I wanted to, you know, I heard about him and I didn't know what he was doing. He says, well, you know, how about this rice? Have you ever seen rice like this before? And it was it was shorter and it was kind of olive green and it had more grains to the head than others. It, it looked different. I said, no, I've never seen rice like this before. And he said, you know, that's because these fields haven't been plowed for more than 25 years. And then I thought back to that class mm -hmm. at Berkeley. Yep. Where the professor said, we just don't know how to grow crops. And he was particularly referring to grains and row crops without plowing. So that was pretty remarkable. And then also because he was so friendly and because he didn't mind that I had a big old beard and long hair and was, you know, had the appearance of, you know, some people wouldn't have really even wanted to talk to me, but he didn't care at all about that. He was a really tolerant person. Yeah, I remember a story about one, one of his trips to California. There was some, like, punk rocker with blue hair, and he was almost chastising was you. For, chastising me for, for cracking a, a joke. comment about I know. him. yeah. What I developed was a master-disciple relationship with him. Yeah. And that hasn't ended and will never end for me. And so the person asked me, so how long did you know before that you were going to develop that relation? I said, oh, about 10 minutes. It must have felt ordained. I mean, even your facility with the language, all of it culminated That's what I'm in saying. that moment. And the reason that I keep mentioning this over and over is because when you try to apply natural farming and the idea that nature should take the lead and you mm -hmm. should kind of lay back and give it what it needs and lay back, you got to listen. He knew he needed a, a to include in a soil, permanent soil building ground cover. He needed some legumes or nitrogen fixing plants. So he grew about 20. And he said when they grew out over the next year, it was so obvious. It was like there was a big sign up, white clover, vetch. And then he stopped growing the others because he got a message. It was just so clear. So what he was doing, he kept asking nature questions. He kept asking for guidance. And he would get a sign and go that way. It's really hard for people these days to kind of give up preconceived ideas and to give up control and to take that path. In what way did nature tell him that things like clover and vetch were great cover crops to mix in? Okay, because one of the, it rains a lot in Japan mm -hmm. and there's a lot of grassy weeds. That's why their tool of choice when they go out to the field is this comma to constantly be cutting grass. It's like a sickle? Yeah, a yeah. little hand sickle. And we, we, we take clippers because we got a lot of woody stuff to deal with. So one of the challenges he had was how do you control the grassy weeds, not get rid of them, control them. And he noticed that, that with the other forms of clover and, and stuff, it looked like you had a solid plot, but weeds were growing up all through them. And then he realized that all of those, they grew in like a rosette. It had a deep taproot and then it grew out and the weeds could come up between. The white clover only, made a mat, a solid mat, and, and there were no weeds. Awesome. 
He gets two in one. He, he improves the soil and he gets a natural weed control. Yeah, and rather than saying, okay, I think clover might be best in this area, I think vetch might be best in this area, I'll plant some cucumbers over here because they like this, it was all random selection, right? Well, and then eventually he, he got sophisticated on, he got, quote, sophisticated on his vegetable planting. He took the seeds of all the different vegetables, mixed them together in a bag and shook them up, <laughs> put them in a bowl, you know, he cut the ground cover. He grew the vegetables in the spaces between the orchard trees. He didn't put them in rows or anything. He just scattered the seed, mixed all the seeds and scattered them, and then covered them up with uh, the, the grasses that he had just cut. He didn't want to go through that process that you just mentioned. Cucumbers like the sun and good drainage and the, the um, um, salad greens are going to want to be in the shade and that the gobo, the burdock, is going to want this or that. He wanted to take that human decision-making out of the picture. So he mixed them all up, and he just scattered them out there, and he said, for the first 10 years, he was totally surprised by where stuff came up. Not at all, but he was leaving the decision-making to nature. See, this is totally different from organic farming. And there were great mysteries that wouldn't have ordinarily been solved had he not. And things grew in areas that I'm sure that he never would have thought they would have grown. Yeah. I said the first 10 years he was surprised. After that, he was expecting it. Mm. It still kept happening. And then you get tons of surprises and you get weird hybrids and you get the taste changes and this. And, and so every day, I don't want to minimize this. He didn't, I don't think he... He could have talked more about this, but every day you walked out into the orchard, there was some new and wonderful thing that you would see, totally unexpected, because you're growing things from seed, so you get weird fruits and you get weird flowers and you get lots of different insects and everything's interacting. And um, it's not like the typical orchard, which is you can kind of make a design and you put the design in and every day you go out there and you more or less see the same thing. Mm -hmm. And that's not really stimulating yes. for the human spirit. Here's the big difference. When you go into a regular orchard, you see human intention. This is a vision of what humans want to do there. It's very familiar. It's in rows. It's like these, these um, ornamental gardens and all these places like Versailles or anything. And they're all in rows and it's all... Controlled, totally controlled. Mm -hmm. And so you see how great human beings are. That's the implication. Look what we can do. And of course you get weeds and stuff because nature is trying to fulfill its destiny in those gardens. And so all of the maintenance on those gardens is to keep nature from doing what it needs to do. But yeah. the other side is, you walk into a natural garden, you see nature's expression directly. Mm -hmm. And that fills the soul with light. Well, the, the impression I, I got when, when I hear people say, you know, natural farming is not adaptable to this, I, I feel like it's very, by the very spirit of natural farming, of course it's not adaptable because you're adapting to nature instead of the other way around, instead of saying, how do I adapt natural farming to my needs and my to our, vineyard and, or my and, crops? And our culture puts severe 
pressure and restrictions on farming of any kind, especially small-scale, diverse organic farming, mm. because you got to make money and the taxes and the politics. We talked about earlier, it's beautifully adapted for self-sufficiency for the people that live there or a community that can live together like that. Mm. But on the other hand, Fukuoka managed to do both because he had he himself and the students lived up there and had plenty of vegetables, but he never marketed the vegetables. But he did market 200,000 pounds of citrus every year from his orchard. It was a commercial orchard, and he managed to do both. But it's perennials. If you try to do it with annuals, you're cooked. You know, he said, well, I suppose somebody asked him when he came to the United States, well, how would you adapt natural farming to a commercial vegetable? You know, even a small scale commercial vegetables like somebody selling at the farmer's market. Mm -hmm. He says, well, I suppose you could figure out how to do it, but that's not the best use for it. It's, it's the, the, if you want to make it commercial, use orchard crops, use, you know, don't use annuals. It's too much work. So one of the major... Uh plot points and it's just one timely moment after another you could have had this mo this moment this two years on fukuoka's farm at any point in human history but it happened to be at the time that the japanese manuscript of one straw yeah. revolution came out i have been totally lucky to um have been i guess the cliche or the expression is to be at the right place at the right time but at least I recognized it, you know, and followed through. So let's talk about that book and then your role in bringing it almost ambassadorially to the United States. I brought the book to the United States and people, you know, I saw my friends, I went back to Berkeley and people say, so what are you going to do? I said, well, I've got this manuscript. I'm going to try to find a publisher for it. And of course, everybody's got a manuscript or right. a screenplay or something. And they said, look, if you don't have, if you're not a published author, good luck. Gary Snyder, the poet and environmental activist who lives in the foothills of the Northern California, he had lived in Japan for a long time and he actually was one of the founders of Suwanose Commune. Mm -hmm. And we had a really tight mutual friend in common. So I took the manuscript to him and he said, uh, you know, he had heard of Fukuoka, but he said, you know, I'm not a farmer. I'm more of a mountain person. Why don't you show it to my friend Wendell? And anyway, Wendell called me a week later. I didn't know who Wendell Berry was because I was in, living in Japan and so forth, but he's pretty much the closest we have in the United States to Fukuoka. And he also loved the content, knew the manuscript needed work, he took the manuscript under his wing. And in the meantime, I got offers from three other publishers to do it. But he wanted to take it to, to Rodale Press because he wanted to make sure that the book would get to real, actual farmers in the Midwest, people who could actually use this. And it, it wouldn't be pigeonholed as a new age book. And Rodale was a non-traditional publisher in the sense that they, dealt, they didn't really deal with more narrative type this was, spiritual. this was the most unusual book at the time that they ever published. They had never published anything like it before because it's all how-to-do-it stuff. 
and how do you grow better tomatoes and how do you do, but they were still putting out great information about organic farming. So I said, okay, let's go with them. And then it turns out that Wendell became the actual developmental editor for Rodale Press. So we worked on the manuscript together for a year and a half, mailing it back and forth. He's in Kentucky, I was in Berkeley, and sometimes when I ran out of money living at my parents' place in Los Angeles, Oh my God! We just stuck it together. Grassroots. And my mom was a typist, and we didn't have word processing then. So when the manuscript got so you couldn't barely read it with all the changes, we had to turn out a new manuscript, and that took like three days to type a new manuscript. And as you said, you knew that this this wanted to be made. And I knew. Did you know it would be such a hit? What was the reception? I didn't know that quite that big. But I knew it would be. And what was the reception at the time? Because this is 1978. Oh, the book, it went crazy. This was, it came out in 1979. Okay. And it was a back to the land movement. And the um, environmental movement was just getting going. There was spiritual movement. Macrobiotics was coming in. all this new stuff. And this was a message people seemed to be waiting for. This is crazy, but they originally had a printing scheduled for something like 10,000, which is big. They got so many orders that the book went into the second printing before it even came out. And then right away, it started getting translated into other languages. And it's been translated now into more than 30 languages. That's amazing. And maybe two, three or four, maybe, came from the Japanese, but all the others came from our English language translation. And it especially, in Southeast Asia and especially India, people responded to that message. And our dream, our dream was, when the book came out in Japanese, and we're sitting around the fire, you know, in one of these mud-walled huts, and we said, you know, his message has been completely neglected in Japan. We've got to get it out to the rest of the world. To do that, we need to translate it into English. And then we had this dream that would be translated into other languages and go around the world. And that's what happened. And last year in the spring, I went to India and I met literally hundreds of natural farmers who were all inspired by reading the One Star Revolution to practice natural farming. Yeah. And I, you know, and I get emails from all over the world and this has become a worldwide understanding. I won't quite say it's a movement, but that was never the intent. The intent was not to create an institute or create a movement or to have teachers all over the world. This is grassroots from beginning to end. We have had no money, no grants, nothing, except people who have been moved by the message. So we've talked a lot about the spiritual aspects, which are indispensable. Um, but for someone just getting their bearings who, who may not have read One Straw Revolution, can we maybe talk about the four principles, you know, kind of the letter of natural farming? The point is not the principles. The point isn't even the technique. It's like, how do we not do this? And how do we not do that? How do we give up control? Because what he created You'll never, be, you'll never do that exactly at your place because the conditions are different, 
climate's different, the soil, your crops are different. And I get emails all the time. I get somebody from North Africa who writes to me, says, I can't grow tangerines and rice where I am. Can I still practice natural farming? Of course, but it's not going to look like his farm. But you still avoid plowing, avoid using chemicals, avoid um, pruning unless the tree has been pruned before. You know, and I even forgot the fourth one. <laughs> About mulching? Oh, no, compost yeah. and, and fertilizer. Yeah. And compost, as we could talk about compost if you want. So he plants were compost. his compost, right? The cover crops were the compost. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you. Sensei was this visionary who lived most of the time up in the orchard, and nobody could relate to him, and he had a hard time, frankly, relating to the villagers mm -hmm. or his own family. Like every other home in the village, his wife maintained a traditional Japanese organic vegetable garden. That's where she did the kitchen scraps and where she had vegetables right at hand. You know, he's growing his vegetables up in the orchard. That doesn't help to raise four kids down in right. the village. She just did what everyone else did. So she had a compost pile. It, perfectly appropriate. Perfect. Sensei's idea about compost was it's unnecessary. And he said, you know, I don't do compost. Compost is, is way too much work. You've got to gather this stuff together. Then you've got to keep it moist. You've got to turn it. Then you've got to get it back out to the field. What if you've got 200 acres? That's a pain. And he talked to Robert Rodale about this. And then he bugged the people out at the research farm about it. At Rodale, they're based on compost. He said that making compost, the only benefit actually people are getting from compost is it's faster. And how is that a benefit? that you're trying to exceed or speed up natural time. Why do that? The way nature does things is exactly in the right time. It's the same mentality as a person that wants to drive a sports car, a fast car, instead of walking or riding a bicycle. You'll get there, you'll be healthier. Again, this is a principle. If you're trying to do something that's not the way nature does it. You're gonna have side effects. And they're, they're not good ones. There can't be, because part of his vision was, nature is ideal the way it is, the way it's all fit together. I mean, it's a, it's a blessing and a miracle and we should be thankful for this. And all the elements are, they fit together seamlessly and it can't be really improved upon. Like you mentioned in the book, when you utilize a scientific method and when you break something down into its parts, there might be some specificity gained, but not in relation to the whole because you've dissected it. And so the whole ecosystem of nature is so much more vast and complex that to think that you can somehow break everything into component parts and put it back together yourself. Exactly what nature does. This is not the way indigenous people related to nature. So, I don't know. Yeah, don't get me started I, I, well, on science. Totally. And, and then I'm, the... I'm getting to be like a curmudgeonly <laughs> Fukuoka here. Hey, but, but you I... are. Let's call a spade a spade. And I think there's a lot to be gained by us. Um... The, the, the one thing, sentence that he said more than any other that I can remember is, people can never understand nature. 
And yet well, that's all we do, basically science. How are we going to understand nature? How can we? It's just not possible. And it's a kind of an arrogant attitude. Mm-hmm. We're somehow thinking that we're no more and we can do better. And, and you know, I hate to bring it up because I'm, I'm really positive, optimistic person. But if you want to see how well we're doing, I mean, just look outside. And you can't go through five decades of chemical farming with this notion and not have a little bit of baggage. The baggage is piling up. And it's just what he he said, even when I I was there in the 70s, and it wasn't quite so apparent then that that, uh, he said, look, you try to do something, you, you try to grow plants out of season, and you put them in a greenhouse, and you do something weird, that you're gonna need to put more energy in. You can do it. You can probably figure out a way to do it, but it's going to take more energy and it's not going to be healthy food. You're going to, then you're going to eat that food and then people are gradually going to, then you're going to feel the effect not only in the environment, but the people are going to suffer because we're not going to be as aware. This reminds me of one of your quotes. With all the advantages of his organic no-till farming technique, you would think that many farmers around the world would have followed Mr. Fukuoka's example but the fact is few people are practicing natural farming today. While the reasons for this are complex, natural farming is not. In fact, Mr. Fukuoka considers it embarrassingly simple. So what, what are those complex reasons? Oh, it's it just, you just run it down. All of the assumptions and the values of modern culture that, that everybody has learned when we went through public school, we learned it in literature, and we learned it in, in, in our religious studies and everything. And so we're on this track that started about 8,000 years ago. And natural farming is much more related to indigenous understanding. And that understanding began from the dawn of human history. And without going 4 million years back, let's just to Homo sapiens, let's say roughly 200,000 years, all in Africa. Mm. Consciousness, maybe 150,000 years spreading out all over the world, finding a place to live, living there for many, many, many generations, trying things, getting nature's feedback, seeing what worked and incorporating that into the lore of the culture, see what didn't work. And if it wasn't important, ignoring it. If it was important, putting that into the lore, why we don't do that. This was all taught in rituals and dances and as an oral, you know, communication. And so gradually, people learned how to live within the family of life, following natural law for tens of thousands of years, right? It's, be, it's an unbroken understanding that was passed down from generation to generation. And once we decided that we were superior, that chain was broken. And then, for the first time, we had to figure out how to live. More was better. And we got conquest, we got standing armies, we got stratified societies, we got slavery, because we weren't informed by natural law or by nature anymore. So I think your question was, what are these things? Well, just look at anything produced by the modern culture. And that's the answer. Now, this might seem extreme, but Fukuoka said, anything produced by a culture, a, a culture that's not connected to nature there's nothing good about it. I have no use for it. And, but then when I ran the One Star Revolution by my mother for the first time, for example, she goes, oh, you mean classical music? He doesn't think classical music is a good thing? He doesn't think 
education for all is a good thing. Not if it is going to deafen the person's ability to hear the wind rustling through the leaves or to hear the babbling brook. I went through public schools and all of that. And so I'll tell you, I can't believe how lucky I am to have had a glimpse of life outside of that understanding. Yeah. It must have been incredibly gratifying for Fukuoka to have worked on his farm in isolation with basically neighbors laughing at him for years and decades, only to see him at the point that One Straw Revolution becomes this international sensation, all of a sudden receiving this you know, recognition, he kind of became a star overnight, according to your book. Is that right? That's true. Yeah. Totally true. Then he started getting awards overseas. The last time I was in Japan, I had the manuscript of the One Star Revolution in my backpack, and everybody was saying, good luck. And I was off to America. I just went back <laughs> for the first time. And somebody pointed out, they said, you know, Fukuoka is one of the most well-known Japanese people internationally that there is. So was he f visibly moved by this all of a sudden attention that he received? <laughs> no, he just kept going. Yeah. Because he was... He was from the time he had that vision, let's say, when he was 25, he was laser beamed. How can I use this understanding that was given to me? I don't know why, given to me. How can I use this to help humanity? And once he got outside of Japan and he saw first California, then the East Coast and Europe, and especially Africa and India and other places, and he saw the scale of the worldwide environmental crisis, especially desertification, then that's what he was doing. It didn't, no. Yeah, I remember one particular he, debate about the desertification of California in the book. That was laughable. Yeah. I know, but that was the entire time he was in California. People were claiming it was the climate, the Mediterranean climate. That's the reason California is so dry. That's what I've been told and eroding. Oh, I got that in soil science. Yeah. There was water everywhere when the Europeans came. There was marshlands. The, the, the San Joaquin Valley was essentially, it was a Thule marsh the, all summer. There were rivers. How long? They never was dried this? out. It was when the Spanish first came there. I guess that was originally 15, late 1500s. And then, but really until the missionaries came and they brought all the grazing animals and then they brought the European agriculture. That's another thing. One of the problems is the Europeans, wherever they went, they brought the same agriculture with them because that's all they knew, whether it was appropriate or not. Mm. So uh, no sensitivity to where they were at all. They just came there and they did their thing. They colonized and they did a lot of damage. So pretty much Wherever we go in the world, and a lot of places I go, including Southern Oregon, people say, oh, it's so beautiful here. And it is, but all I see is, is trash landscapes. You know, this is the blessing and the curse of natural farming and seeing the world the way Fukuoka sees it. Now, I won't say natural farming or following Fukuoka is the only way to join again with nature, to live a fulfilling and sensitive life that is in tune. We were just talking to Nate in China this morning mm -hmm. about the, what's happened with the vineyards 
and the grapes and how the understanding of natural farming is reached everywhere because that understanding didn't exist when I was living in Napa Valley right. in the in 1970s. But now I'm hearing about this whole culture that's developed around a more diverse and more rich and more uh, compassionate understanding of our relationship with nature. One young Japanese fellow stayed at my farm for more than three years to learn about natural farming. This is Fukuoka talking. Later, he came to California with the idea of making the landscape green. He tried to go grow rice on a dry hillside in the coast range where there was almost no water. He failed because he decided that he wanted to grow rice without consulting with the spirit of the land and asking what it wanted. The first question you should ask yourself when you come to a piece of land is, what does the earth need, not what do I want to grow here? How can I serve nature instead of what can I get from nature? People ask all the time, when I come to a piece of land, how do I know what to do? Well, that's a good start. Start asking those questions. Instead of saying, you know, I'm coming here and I want to do a chestnut orchard because, you know, chestnuts are coming back and I really want to do it. And so I'm going to impose a chestnut orchard here. Might not be appropriate. Mm -hmm. And incidentally, the person I was talking about there was Hidesan, of all people, the people that knew natural farming the best. And so he got a real smackdown, not from sensei, from nature. Because mm -hmm. by the time, and, and sensei went to that farm, and it's described in uh, Sowing Seeds in the Desert. If Fukuoka was going to plant a vineyard, let's say he has a raw piece of land, uh -huh. can you illustrate how he might approach that and then talk about a grape cycle from a pruning to harvest and what that might look like? Well, you know, I don't know exactly because he never really actually planned a vineyard, but he did have grapes growing all over. And he had them growing here and there. And there's so much um, benefit to not planting in rows and not being in monoculture. And it, it gives a more diverse feeling and for the health of all the plants scattering here and there. And that's one of the reasons that scattering seeds all over. You know, someone at the Green Gulch farm, uh, the Zen Center's farm in Marin County, they showed him a radish and said, we got problems with the root borers and radish. And he said, well, look at, look at your field. And it had been plowed and it was planting in rows. The root borer finds one and then they find the next one. They know just go right down the line. You know, nature itself is healthy. And the orchard was totally healthy and he didn't have to do anything. He didn't have to spray. He didn't have to make compost. He didn't have to do anything really. Um, and that is actually the meaning of do nothing farming. But what he would do, he would, I don't know if he ever even never talked to him about growing grapes from seed. Does anybody do that? Somebody must. We were talking about this the other this day. This is a food giant topic. I don't know. <laughs> yes. Crazy. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so there's, so there's a, so the notable project is, is the Hayes Ranch. Was part of Evening Land, part of this project, a really ambitious project to make extraordinary Pinot Noir on the western coast of America and, you know, in three different locations. Um, and in Santa Barbara and an Occidental, and then in the Willamette Valley. And one of the parcels, a parcel called the Hayes Ranch, they started a seedling project where they planted a whole parcel to seedlings of Pinot Noir. As far as I'm aware of, that's like the most notable commercial venture to, to start a vineyard 
project, you know, from seed. But there's a lot of, and, and, and I think the, the biggest issue with that project was they were just using seed from one cultivar, just from Pinot Noir. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you look at the genetic material of the 1,500 or so grapevines that are commonly used, like in the world today, they never come... Like, it's always the result of a crossing between sort of many grapes. Right. And so if you'd imagine a vineyard's prior to industrialization and monoculture and modernization, prior to Phloxera and Power Mildew and all those things, they always, they would have been, those are vineyards that would have had many, many different grapes all planted together in a field, not in rows, often layered as like the method of propagation um, in many cases, there would have been, especially prior to like, like American vine diseases arriving in in Europe, there wouldn't have been a, no there was no reason to spray, no reason to kind of be in the rows to like work the soils, and so in that in those kind of conditions, you would have had all these varieties cross pollinating, and then you would have had seedlings just randomly coming up in the vineyard, and people would have had a chance to say, oh, that tastes really good, let's clonally propagate that further. And that, so, and then as we sort of discussed, that sort of stopped for so many cultural reasons, it just stopped happening. I think now, as people become more and more interesting, especially in the wine world, in all these things regarding um, natural farming and, and more regenerative agriculture, there's huge interest in taking this up again. And there are people thinking in really powerful ways about you know, what this would look like and how it, you know, how it should go down. But that being said, there's still, there are not that many projects to speak of. Isn't it fun? I think the the incredible part about it is, so it costs to plant a vineyard in the Willamette Valley using the conventional methodologies, $30,000 an acre. Mm -hmm. And then if you get into a really exciting property, property where it's really rocky, on the hillside, and you know, it could be sixty-five to $100,000 an acre. What's amazing wow. is that if you go to plant a vineyard like this from seed, the cost is almost n- nothing to get sort of everything started. And so the idea is that you would take a fermenter from a wine made with this like, diverse clonal material and you take that pomace and you just spread that pomace out in the field. It's its own um, perfect medium for um, sort of getting these seedlings to come up. Mm-hmm. And you would, and it's put down like incredible density, right? So you, you're, you're putting this pomace out so the seedlings would come up at a rate of like 10,000 plants per acre or more, which is really dense. And I think that the genetic the way it plays out genetically is that probably four of those 10,000 seedlings would produce a grape that is compelling from the standpoint both of flavor and compelling from the standpoint of um, drought tolerance, disease resistance, kind of all those things. And then the next step in that is you take wood from those one, two, three, or four grapes that were successful, you know, based on those parameters from that field. And then you just use all the other seedlings as rootstock and you graft onto them. Oh. And so you have this beautiful high density, like sort of in your feed. 
And even that, it's like a simple way of looking at because as we were talking earlier, in sort of your ideal situation like that, you would have mixed vines mm-hmm. and trees. And you would use the trees as use the trees a trellis, as trellis. And a medium for it. And so in an ideal world, you put out seeds from the grapes plus seeds of mm-hmm. different um, other kinds of trees. You and know, then the birds suffering from quality. Yeah, yeah, and all these, and yeah, totally, and all those things like start to happen. Yeah, and and so all you need for this project, you just land. Don't need much money, do but you? But you don't need money. You need time. You need land and time. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the interesting things is is the most expensive land for wine grapes is the most infertile. You know, is this yeah. idea of fascinating wine is is made in really rocky, interesting soils. Does that hurt one's ability to adapt natural farming methods because of the lack of fertility in the soil, or? I don't think so. It might, no, the grapes will grow fine. The vines will grow beautifully. They'll climb up into the trees. Mm-hmm. They just uh, won't produce as many fruits, mm. you know? And, but it's just a sense I didn't really care about that because he wasn't doing it for commercial production. So to compare what he did with grapes, which was have them scattered all around, growing up into trees and over bamboo thickets and things in with other vines. You know, and he, uh, basically he was growing the grapes for wildlife. So this is, it's a little bit different and, and you know, want to be sensitive to that and, you know, acknowledge the fact that, that people are growing grapes to make wine and for the commercial purpose as well. But maybe we can, we can get all of these things together and get, get it all done in a fun way and, and move the genetic progression or in our understanding along. I think situations where you had land that was really abused, and I think there are opportunities to go into that land where you have a lot of, where there's a lot of acreage available for not very much money, and to really work on these healing processes, but at the same time, like, learn, like, a lot about, you know, how food can be grown, like for the mm-hmm. future and learn more about like these farming methods. Or even, I mean, this sounds crazy. I just thought of it, but what about using grapes as a ground cover? And yeah. letting it grow right on the ground, shade the shade the, the soil and use that for kind of rehabilitation. I mean, yeah. you can, bougainvillea, for example, is just an ornamental, but everybody trellises it. It's a great ground yeah, cover. Right, covers up in the in the Canary sure. Sea with like a Sirtico and like sort of, so depending on what that ground you know, is light that can be really desirable. You know, places where grinds, vines are kind of growing all over rocks. And, and yeah. a lot of the places that are rocks and poor soil now, like let's say Greece and a lot of Italy. Used to be. Very used good. to be. And so, so we're talking about rehabilitation. Ireland, yeah. 90% woodland forest mm-hmm. originally. People think Ireland was always these, these barren fields with uh, sheep and cattle. It was 90% woodland forest. That's crazy. And to engage in these projects, and, and then I think that so many of the things that, are, that seem problematic about them, like, for instance, yield, really has to do with just issues and how we view that from like a cultural viewpoint. And then when we change that perspective, it really open, opens up these big avenues. So say in wine, for instance, in Burgundy, right, the land is so, so scarce that it's kind of gradually forced these closer and closer plantings mm. 
Um, I'm just saying, like, they're these, like, in the Montrachet land, it's, like, super, super precious. People have to, like, they take things, like, yield, like, you know, like, very seriously. But in situations where, where there's a lot of land available, and also where you're not, again, like, putting in all this input into tilling and mowing and spraying and all those things, then all of a sudden a situation where you're really more foraging for grapes across a broad landscape, it's irrelevant that the yield isn't as high. And again, like, in, as you're we talking about for lunch, in referencing like sort of Aaron Burr and like forage cider and stuff like that, there are then all these flavors that like emerge from that kind of system that are incredibly exciting and don't exist in, you know, in a conventional farming system. You know, concentrations of different chemical components, things can be incredibly good for health and like other things mm-hmm. like that. It's interesting that you're talking that you talked about yield and and I, I thought in the very beginning of Fukuoka's trials that it was very important for him to establish that he could yield as much as his neighbors by doing this. The point there was after he had this realization, he thought that, that this could be beneficial to people. He and and he exp- tried to explain that to people and they couldn't understand what he was talking about because it was the 30s and science and technology were promising this whole new world. So he went back to his farm and created, to create a physical example of what he was talking about. And so his idea was, if I can show that without using tractors or fossil fuel or chemicals or any of the uh, trappings of modern agriculture and still get yields that are equal to the neighbors, then I've shown it. The technology is not necessarily a helpful thing, especially with the side effects. Creates pollution, runs down the soil, and here he says, but that only applied to his rice field because the, the, the farms in Japan are judged by their yields of rice. So he was really trying to get good yields of rice. He wouldn't have cared about that if he wasn't trying to prove a point. And he didn't really particularly care about it with his vegetables and his fruit and the orchard stuff, or the grapes. Mm. It was just the rice. If we return back to our like the theoretical sort of grapevine forest garden, if you can imagine, you know, the grapes are one part of the system and then a fruit tree is another part of the system and then any animals that can you know, forage like underneath that or then like mm-hmm. another part of the yield, any vegetables that can kind of come up, you know, in that floor. And so I think that like when we're talking about yield in the West, we've had this just super limited, narrow kind of idea of what sort of yield is in a field. Um, and yeah, it's hard to beat those yields just single crop to single crop. But then when you look at the stacked yields in mm-hmm. these systems, they're so much more, you know, productive. And then if you look at like things like carbon sequestration yeah, and health for the environment, and then it really, yeah, all, then it really goes crazy. Yeah. And you, and then if you pe- penalize the conventional system sure. for, you right. know, all the environmental the damage, then it starts to look ri- like it's inc- ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, but people don't do the math, right? Or haven't until very recently. Were there ever disastrous vintages at Fukuoka's farm where mildew got everything or a disease of some bug infiltrated? Or did you no, s- that only happened in the early years before I got there. And that was uh, <clears throat> when he inherited the orchard. 
mm-hmm. very low diversity. It was eroded topsoil, citrus, some acacias, and hardly any so any other plants. So when he tried to grow vegetables, for example, they got attacked by insects. But then once the diversity came in and he had habitat for a complete spectrum of insects, and the same was true in the rice and barley fields, he, he really, he, he lost about 10 to 15% every year. And he not only didn't mind that, he was happy about that <laughs> because they were weeding out the 15% that were most vulnerable. This is a basic concept in biology that the weak ones get, but, but that no insect goes out of control. That happens when you grow in monoculture and there's no, or when you rely on chemicals. But he did walk us into the fields. I mentioned that he walked us into the field and showing us all the diseases that existed in the field. He was proud of it. Right. It's part of the just, diversity. It's another life form. Well, he considered diseases to some, and he considered them, you know, right. part of the, the fungi and the biota that was living in the fields. And he, he was glad. Yeah. Yeah. What was that one bug? This, was it cicada bug or what was the... It was a cicada. Yeah, it's um, called unca. And everybody was terrified and would spray like four or five times a year they to get rid do. of this bug. Yes. Well, they still spraying for it. And he yeah. would never spray and actually... What month is this? Oh, this spring as we speak. Yeah. Yeah. Spring. Yeah. Yeah, he, he didn't. Now, how he managed to, to survive the drift of the neighbors, because I was there right. working in the fields, and, you know, it was in the 70s, and... You know, I really didn't even understand the the enormity of this, but the stuff was drifting in. I didn't have a mask or anything, and I was right in the, you know, maybe that's sure. It has definitely affected my sense of humor. (laughs) (laughs) But then on the other hand, his insects, on the other hand, his insects, well, they didn't have a chance if they left. So it's the kind of the effect, you know, in California, they have these bird sanctuaries. And during the hunting season, the birds know exactly where, where the go. sanctuaries are. Mm-hmm. They never leave. And I think that was the effect at his place. Now, looking back, I said, damn, if I had realized that I was going to be doing this someday, I would have paid more attention to a lot of things. But I was too busy enjoying living there to notice or write down everything. Does leaving grasses and having that econ- or the environmental diversity, is that like a, like a last line of defense against chemical drift? I mean, is that, is that stop it more than soil? I, I assume that would be plowed and exposed. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Sure. Because a healthy soil also acts as a filter. And it, it really does clean the soil of a whole bunch of stuff. There's certain plants that are better than others, but if you have a whole diverse bunch of soil building ground cover, what goes into it is going to, the soil is constantly not doing what it's can. It's just, it's nature to filter. It's just heavy metals is the one thing that it has a problem with, you know, but something like even chemicals, it takes a time though. Certain ones like mustard, you see mustard in the, in the uh, vineyards all the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is the number one soil cleaner mm-hmm. of all, and buckwheat and the uh, sunflower plants. Mm-hmm. But I remember when I was in the Napa Valley and in the, in the winter, 
you know, the, the, everything gets pruned and the, you yeah. can barely see the vines and it's just it's almost yellow different. sea. Of, oh, it's so gorgeous. It's amazing it does the same thing for your body too, which is interesting. I'm not surprised that, that it's doing so well there, probably because the soil is, is asking for it. Yeah. You know how these medicinal plants come into yeah. a place where they're yeah. needed. Yeah. Yeah. This has been amazing. Do you have any more thoughts for Larry? I think this was a a great start. We'll uh, we'll do part two tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. I want to hear short. more <laughs> from Nathan about this stuff. Of course, we did talk about this a little bit more, but I definitely want to continue our conversation. Yes. Yeah, that'd so be let's, let's arrange that for when I come up. Thank you so much for putting up with us. This was awesome. Well, I did the best I could. <laughs> Cheers, man. All right, that concludes today's episode. If you liked it, please hit the subscribe button. And if you have any comments, we welcome those as well. Also, the books mentioned by Larry, One Straw Revolution, those are available on Amazon, as is One Straw Revolutionary, and Sowing Seeds in the Desert, which is a Fukuoka follow-up book about desertification in our world's lands. So thank you so much. We'll be back again soon.